Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Revelation again? We just have a couple of weeks left in this journey through the book of Revelation. Today we're in the 18th and the 19th chapters. With just a couple of weeks left, the things that, especially those of you who've been with us in person or online, that I wanted you to get most is this idea that that we are regularly gathered to worship to be reminded that the scroll in the one in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne that there is one who is worthy as Danny said just a little bit ago to bring all things to God's purposes it is the lion of the tribe of Judah but when we look we see that the lion is indeed the lamb and, and that it is God's revelation of self-giving love that will draw all things to its glorious conclusion Another thing I want you to take from the series is that we see all these judgments, and we'll see some more today. We saw seals open and trumpets blow, and today it's final bowls that pour out judgment upon creation. But in each case, judgment happens and nobody repents. But we spent a couple of weeks thinking about those great chapters in Revelation where, that describe a people that are being formed, that are being marked by the Lamb, that are embodying the very reality of God's presence in the world, and that makes all the difference, and, and that brings transformation. Last week, we thought about the ways in which the Revelator pictures this life as a kind of battle, a, kind of, a cosmic battle between the forces of the lamb and the forces of the dragon and the beast, and, and last week, we thought about what it means to journey through that and be marked by the lamb. Um, I feel like I've gained 10 pounds this week going to graduation parties. Uh, and over at Middleton this morning, we prayed for our, our high school graduate over there. And, and as I have gone to those parties and eaten too much and thought about what it means for, for these young people to journey forward in, in life, um, I, I keep coming back to those texts from last week. It is a, a challenging journey forces that are trying to draw their allegiance, draw their life to them. And yet we have this hope that, that God walks with us. And like the Israelites passing through the Red Sea, we can get to that other side, that sea of crystal, and not only make it in safety, but most of all, to make it transformed and to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. But this morning we get to the 18th and 19th chapters, really important I'm going to read just the first five verses of chapter 18 and then a few verses in chapter 19. If you're with us this morning in Abel, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was filled with light because of his glory. He called out with a loud voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a lair for every unclean spirit. She's a lair for every unclean bird and a lair for every unclean and disgusting beast because all the nations have fallen due to the wine of her lustful passion. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth became rich from the power of her loose and extravagant ways. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you do not take part in her sins and don't receive any of her plagues. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God remembered her unjust acts. And then to chapter 19. But after this, I heard what sounded like a huge crowd in heaven. They said, hallelujah, the, the salvation and glory and power of our God. His judgments are true and just because he judged the great prostitute who ruined the earth by her whoring and he exacted the penalty for the blood of his servants from her hand. 
Then they said a second time, Hallelujah, smoke goes up from her forever and always. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they said, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice went out from the throne and said, Praise our God, all you his servants and you who fear him, both small and great. And I heard something that sounded like a huge crowd, like rushing water and powerful thunder. They said, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. And let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen is the saint's acts of justice. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I love this morning, I love Revelation 18 and 19. I have preached on them often, and I kind of thought I would do my shtick on them again today. Um, I think Revelation 18 and 19 are two of the more important chapters in the book of Revelation because as so often has been the case as we've thought through Revelation, the Revelator offers to us kind of two options, life or death, good or evil, the brokenness of Babylon or the redemptive beauty of the kingdom of God. And in chapter 18, we see the final bowls of judgment being poured out. This is the end. All of the brokenness and wickedness in chapter 16 and 17 is all being put finally to rest. And the new creation, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, the new creation is about to emerge. But in the midst of that, in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon falls Everything that thought it was permanent, everything that thought it was eternal, it all falls. And then in chapter 19, the saints sing hallelujah, blessing, honor, and glory. And so much of the text has to do with do we identify with Revelation 18 or do we identify with Revelation 19? Do we identify with the brokenness and destruction of Babylon or do we identify with the kingdom of God? And so in the past, I've often thought about how we are are so often marked by the empires that we find ourselves a part of, the various Babylons in our lives. And so I've often preached this text and said to people, I usually get in trouble, but I say, I think when you read Revelation 18, absolutely we should, as people living in this particular empire, in this particular nation, we should insert our name in there. So we should read this this way. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He called out with a loud voice saying, fallen, fallen is America the great. It's become a a lair for every unclean spirit. The kings and the rulers of America have gotten, and the merchants of America become rich from the power of their luxury. When you read it like that, it gets quite convicting in so many ways. But I always get in trouble, and so to try to get out of trouble, I say, listen, this is not just about us. If I were in England today, I'd say, oh, well, cheerio, Um, ta-ta, ta-ta, Babylon, Um, you know, or if I were in Germany, I'd say, Danny, you know, no offense, but Avita Zayn, right? Like, so... um, So it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I do think there's a level at which we have to think about the various Babylons that we live in, and I think it's healthy for us, even as much as we love and appreciate rightly the nation that we live in, to confess that it is not eternal and it has some Babylonian qualities, and we can even think of how to work for the good of Babylon, but we also need to recognize not to be ultimately marked by that identity. I think that sermon is absolutely right, but I'm kind of tired of preaching it, and so I want to do something different this morning. Because I think you're starting to get that part of it. 
But I want to think a little bit, bit more deeply about Revelation 18 and 19 and the ways in which the scripture thinks about the nature of sin and the ways in which it captures our lives. So I want to think about three things with you this morning. And if you're taking notes, um, those three things are this. First, the assigning of authority. I want to think about the assigning of authority. Secondly, the systemic nature of sin itself. And then what I think is at the root of much of that systemic sin. So I want to think about authority. I want to think about systemic sin. And I want to think about what is at the root of that systemic sin. First, let's think about authority for a minute. I think it is good and right, and I think it is part of God's creative nature to, to form within our lives, both as, as homes and families, communities, for there to be aspects of authority and for people and even groups of people to be given that kind of authority. So if we think about the creation story, without question, God is the authority over Adam and Eve in the garden. And as I've said to you in the past, scholars who think about the unique creation story of Israel in comparison to the creation narratives of many other ancient nations, one of the very important differences between the two is the majority of creation stories from other civilizations and nature, nations and cultures tend to think of the gods or a god as creating, but creating humankind to be slaves. That God is master, humankind is the slaves, or the gods are the masters, humans are, slavery, are slaves. Certainly, in the authority of Genesis 2 and 3, when God creates Adam and Eve, he does not create them to be his slaves, but to be his co-laborers in the garden, to be reflections of his image. And it's right that later on in the scripture, then we begin to think of God in much more of a parental form of authority, a good father, a good parent to Adam and Eve as children. Are you with me? But then Adam and Eve have a certain level of authority that they're given by God too over each other to care for one another, but also to care and to be dominioners of the creation of the garden. The garden is to be nurtured and cared for, not just simply to be exploited, but they are assigned to be reflections of how God cares for them in how they care for each other and for the garden. Are you with me? And so all that to say, authority is good. It's good that parents have children. It is good that communities have leaders. It's good that churches have pastors. Um, it's good that students have teachers. Like all of that is good authority. But here's the deal. Every one of us in this room, if we haven't yet, but my guess is even if we think about the youngest person in this room, we've all been given certain levels of authority by God. And that's a good thing. But the question is, how do we reflect that authority? But as we reflect that authority, we become part of communities. And we recognize that in communities and in our embodied life together, both as families, as cities, as nations, etc., we begin to get designated forms of authority there as well. And so let me move to the second thing, and that is the systemic nature of sin. So we often, especially in our forms of Christian faith, we tend to think a lot about individual forms of sin, rightly so. Y'all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. No offense, but me too. Um, 
And we, love, we rightly think about the ways in which our own lives stand before the face of God and we recognize the brokenness and sinfulness of our lives. But we also recognize that that, has, that, that brokenness that has entered into us hasn't eliminated all of the ways that we reflect God's image. In fact, I think it would be best for us to think about the sin in our own lives as marring or breaking that image of God. But that means there's some really good things oftentimes that can come from us as humans, but there's an awful lot of sinfulness and brokenness as well. But in the scripture, it doesn't take very long for that sin to begin to build. From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel into the Noah story and the corruption of all of creation— moving all the way then to the Tower of Babel and the people of Babel embodying the kind of brokenness and sinfulness that can pervade systems and structures. And so as the scripture thinks about sin, it thinks about this way, and and this is going to be the headiest part of the message this morning, okay? So hang in with me. I kind of have a theory about this. I'll call it the angels of the church's theory. And the theory goes something like this. You and I as individuals, um, uh, some psychologists in this room who I know well think about these things and social scientists and people who think about the unique nature of humanness, think about it this way. If you put all the parts of our body together, when you add all those parts up, the mystery of humanness is we become more than the sum of those parts. So we return all of the parts of our body into math equations, for example. So we'll give our feet four points. Our hands are pretty cool. We'll give them six points. Our brain is solid 20 points, right? Like if we give it all of these different equations, if you add it all up, the mystery of humanness is somehow we become more than the sum of those parts. But what's important is we are still connected to those parts. Um, so it's not like we take this more than the sum of our partsness and we just put it together with our body. But somehow out of our life and our, our experience matter, our, the aspects of our body matter, but we become more than the sum of our parts. I'll give you just a really crass illustration of that. That more of the sum of your partsness means that some of you that just about two, three minutes ago realized you drank too much coffee this morning and that's become a problem all of a sudden. In fact, it may be so much of a problem that go ahead and get up. We'll still be here when you get back. Maybe. Um, But some of you have realized, oh, I drank too much coffee this morning. But here's the deal. I think he's got, what, maybe 15 minutes left? We'll see. Maybe a little more, a little less. I think I can manage that, right? Like, I think I, I would rather not be a distraction. I think I can hang on for 15 more minutes. What is that part of you when your body's telling you, hey, too much coffee this morning? What is the part of you that says, shh, be quiet, right? Hang in there. What is that more? That's the more than the sum of your partners. You with me? That was a terrible illustration. But um, <laughs> but the scripture seems to picture that that's not just true of Brent, but that is true of us as a community. And this is why I call it the angel of the church theory, because I, I wrote a little book on Revelation 2 and 3 a number of years ago on the angel in, in the letters to the churches of Asia. They're each addressed to the angel of Laodicea or Sardis, the the angel of Ephesus. And my theory on that was that that what the revelator seems to recognize is that that we, in our life together, become more than the sum of our parts, just like our bodies become more than the sum of our parts. So, no offense, but there is an angel of the church of Nampa College Church. 
It's mostly good. We'll talk about it some other time. But, uh, but you can't lead this group or you can't lead a community without recognizing there is a kind of spirit or ethos. When you move to Nampa, there is, some, there is an angel to, the, to Nampa. There's an angel to Idaho. There's an angel to us as a nation. There is a kind of spirit that becomes more than the sum of our parts. And sometimes that can actually be really good and healthy. Sometimes it can be really destructive and sinful. The, the only way I know how to illustrate this is that sometimes, those of you who are sports fans, you know, you can have a team that have a whole bunch of really good players, but then you put them all together and they play really bad. But then sometimes you can have a team that has kind of average players on it, but something happens and they become more than actually their giftedness is. I was going to say, Brent, as Mariners fans, we have no idea what that's about. We've never had talent nor winning. Uh, but so anyway, but you have, you have this, you have these moments where we become more than the sum. And if you step back even further to say, especially when those essence, those spirits become broken, there becomes something in the world that we don't even quite know how to name or even point to exactly, other than just to say, there is a kind of evil in the world that seems to take these authorities that God means for good, for the benefit and blessing of others, but somehow turns that authority in towards itself and against those that it's supposed to care for and it gets caught up in a kind of spirit or essence that becomes personified and in revelation becomes beastly and becomes dragon and becomes this force that seems to break all of these good authorities into something that actually brings destruction instead. Are you with me? And so it's very important for us as Christians to recognize. And I know that sometimes it feels like the word justice can get co-opted culturally, but it's very important to recognize as the church, we are not people who only come to confess our individual sins, although we have a bunch of them to confess. But we are also people who come to realize that the systems that we have largely built also become corrupted and broken and sinful. And we also need to confess that we are part of those systems that we have both formed but have also formed us. Amen? That was really good preaching. So, so the systemic nature of sin, last thing. So what's at the root of that? Lots of things. But I would argue one of the primary things, if not the primary thing, sin that's there, especially in structural evil, is this, what I'll call commodification. There's a, a famous Jewish mystic philosopher by the name of Martin Buber who wrote a very well-known book. Some of you have probably read it, a book called I and Thou. And in it, it's pretty complex and powerful and poetic, but essentially, I would narrow Buber's argument down to this, that the temptation for me and Danny is that when our relationship is healthy, it's when I understand that Danny is what Buber calls a thou. Danny is a person with his own history and hopes and dreams and a calling of God upon his life. He has his own giftedness, right? And when I understand him as Danny and relate to him in that way, there's something really good and healthy about our relationship. And likewise, when he understands that about me, that I am a person with my own 
frailties and history and dreams and callings, when we relate in that way, there's something really good. But here's the temptation constantly. It's to stop treating each other as I and thou, and what Buber calls begin to treat each other as I, it. So I get that Danny's a person, but he also works for me, right? And so my relationship to Danny largely becomes about, Danny, are you doing what you should be doing here, right? Are we getting out of you what we want to get out of you? And by the way, that can go the other way too. I can become an object that makes sure Danny gets certain things in his life, and we can begin to lose each other's thou-ness and begin to treat each other as simply commodities. Have I lost you? This is the temptation and the sin that I think gets captured into systems. So our systems and structures begin to sometimes see the people closest to us maybe as thou's, but we begin to see people outside of us as commodities. As those who are just simply met for our benefit, or we don't really think about the fact that they have names and desires and callings of God upon their life, but we're constantly thinking about each other simply as objects that somehow benefit us or don't benefit us. And if we don't benefit us, maybe we should get rid of them. But if they do benefit us, maybe we should get more of them. Are are you following me? Now, why is that important? Because in Revelation 18, the Revelator pictures Babylon in two images that both have to do with commodification. And the first one I need to be careful with. (laughs) I've often preached Revelation 18 and 19 in settings where it was difficult to deal with. In fact, in Pasadena, I remember I titled a sermon, The Whore of Babylon on Family Sunday. Um, And... uh, Got a few notes that week about thank you for the ways that, for the great conversations we had in the minivan on the way home. Um, but it is very interesting that the picture that the Revelator uses of Babylon, of the system of Rome, is of an authority that was meant for good, but has become prostituted has become so commodified that they not only think of others as a commodity, but they think of themselves as a commodity. And therefore, every relationship is a kind of exchange. What was meant to be about love and relatedness has become about what I can give to you and what you can give to me in return, in commodification. And I realize, and I'm thankful that in many ways we've come to understand People who get captured up in the sex trade industry often do that because they think that's the only value they have to give. And there's probably much that we can think about here about ways in which systems and structures become commodified because we think that's the only value a nation has is its ability to make us all rich. The only value a system has is to make sure it keeps us all isolated from those who might require more than we want to give of our lives. Are you with me? Now, the reason that's important is because the contrary picture in Revelation 19 is also, in many ways, a sexual one. But it's the picture of the the bride, the wedding of the Lamb. 
of a people who have formed themselves not in an I-it relationship of the commodification of intimacy, but it has formed itself in a way that truly gives itself to the other, that recognizes it is meant and it is at its best when it is giving its life and its resources and its blessing in ways that bring hope and welfare and, and giftedness to the other. Have I lost you? The second image that's fascinating, if you have your Bible still open, is that all of those who weep and mourn in chapter 18 do so because they think of this community primarily as a commodity. So verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality with her, shared her loose and extravagant ways, will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their cargoes anymore. And then the revelator spends three verses talking about all these different things that they sell. And there's two interesting things about that. One is that the things that they sell largely are not staples, but are luxury goods. And so it's kind of helped the rich get richer while the poor have less and less. But then even in verse 13, Cinnamon, incense, fragrant ointment, the fra and frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and carriages, but here even, and slaves, and then the, it's almost as though the revelator realizes what he just wrote, and slaves, and then he adds, even human lives, and I would have added an exclamation point if I were translating it. Even human lives. So we have begun to become a people who simply think of others based upon what they can give to us, so much so that we even can find ways to justify the enslavement of others that makes them the ultimate commodity for our benefit. And so merchants and sea captains, everybody who finds themselves caught up in the commodification of Babylon, all of them weep and wail because everything that they cared about is gone. And it is no more. Can I cause trouble for just a second? I couldn't help as I was thinking about all that was going on this week, both inside the church and outside of it, through the lenses of Revelation 18 and 19 and commodification. Probably like you, thinking about the situation in South Texas is not just obviously so heartbreaking. But the part that makes us frustrated and angry is the part of us that feels like, I don't think we have the ability to actually find ways to care more about the protection of the most vulnerable in our communities, in part because we're far more concerned with not impacting a certain part of our economy. And those who are making those decisions are primarily concerned about maintaining their power in the wake of trying to sustain that economy. Now, I know the situation is far more complex than that and the decisions are way above my pay grade. But I do think some of the frustration we feel this week is a, is a reflection of what happens when systems and structures commodify the other and lose the calling that systems and structures have to be, like God, a shepherd to the most vulnerable of the sheep. 
And while we're picking on the world, this week you probably saw some of our brothers and sisters in Christ released a report that was just so discouraging. And, and this is not an attempt to pick on them because we have our own issues here. And our own structural sins to confess as a denomination, as a people. But what was so disheartening about that report was the realization that even within the church, people who use the language of what it means to be a shepherd of the sheep, we too find it far more convenient to protect our structures and our systems and our positions of power than to be the kinds of powers that care for the most vulnerable among us. Right? God help us. And if you're paying attention, Revelation 18 says, the bulls are coming. The God who has called us and called the systems that we are a part of to be a reflection of his goodness. Judgment is coming upon all of the ways that we have failed to do that. Judgment is coming upon that personification of evil that seems to, for some reason, draw all of us into that. Judgment is coming upon the Babylons that we have made eternal when they're not, when they were meant to be structures to bring life to people. Judgment is coming upon those aspects that have not done that. And if that's where our life is, if we have learned to commodify our family, our neighbors, the stranger, then there's a very good chance when all of that falls, we will weep and mourn and wail because that's where our life has actually been. But our hope today is that with those in chapter 19, we will sing and shout hallelujah. For as good as our systems could be at times, they were also really destructive and broken. But those aspects that were caught up in the kingdom, they go on. Thanks be to God. I got to land this plane, but I, I couldn't help but think about one other text in the New Testament. Revelation 18 and 19 reminds me a lot of that parable in Matthew 28 about the, the sheep and the goats. Actually, in the Common English Bible, it's titled The Judgment of the Nations, which is really important. Because often when we read that parable, we think this is about each of us as individuals standing before God and finding out if, <laughs> at Middleton this morning, I said, finding out if we go bad like a sheep, or, and then I realized, I don't really know what goats do. <laughs> bah, burr, bah, I don't know. But as so though we think this is about us as individuals finding out if we're sheep or goats. It's actually not. It's about the judgment of nations and how nations have operated, how these principalities and powers, these systems have operated, separating goat nations from sheep nations, goat communities from sheep communities, goat churches, if you will, from sheep churches. And you know the story. He separates the goats, and the goats say, why are we goats? And he says, well, here's the deal. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick, you didn't heal me. And when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And then they asked this very important question, right? When did we not see you? We were trying to pay attention, but when did we not see you? And then he says, in as much as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. I find that part troubling. But what I find fascinating is then the sheep basically asked the same question. Hey, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and a stranger and naked and sick and in prison? 
I, I love that question because it's almost as though the sheep didn't realize that they were part of a missional strategy. <laughs> I guess like, what, when did we do that? He says, well, when you did it to the least of these, you were, you were doing it to me. The reason I find that text so scary but also hopeful today is it's a reminder that it's not just our lives as individuals, but it is our, our structures, as we'll see the next couple of weeks. The garden ultimately becomes a city. The things that we have put together, the, the churches, the, the things that we have created that are God-honoring, they all make it into the new creation. Come back. You'll see it. But it gives me hope this morning that not just we as individuals, but even us as a church, not perfectly, we'll always be broken and flawed, but we can find ways to become reflections of the Lamb together as a community. And I pray that to be true for us as a church, I pray that to be true for us as a denomination, I pray that to be true for us as a city and as a state and as a nation. And I guess... In closing, I guess that's part of the reason we find weekends like Memorial Day weekend so important to us. It's because part of what we're remembering is that in the midst of a history that oftentimes has real brokenness, and oftentimes leaders that kind of embarrass us and even bring some forms of ju judgment upon us, there are people in our midst who have been called to and found ways to embody the ways that structures and authorities at their best are supposed to do that and find ways to follow callings to lay down their life for the sake of others. And so in closing this morning on this Memorial Day weekend, I, I would love to acknowledge some of you. Um, if you are here this morning and you have served in one of the branches of the military, would, would you stand this morning and let us acknowledge you this morning? Um, I know that there are several in our midst. Remain standing. I, I'd love for you to remain standing. And I would love those family members who are here, who have loved ones, who are currently serving or have served in the past, folks with immediate family members, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, grandparents, aunts, uncles, etc. If you would stand and join them as well, would you join us? And I, I would love for all of you who are here, who are civil leaders, um, police officers, who are um, firefighters, who are elected officials, who are people designated to be authorities in this community, would you stand and join them as well? And I would love for all of you who are leaders within the church, ministers, or those of you who are family of ministers, would you stand as well? And one last one, especially this week, and I know this takes up about the rest of the room. Those of you who are educators, who spend each day and each week caring for little ones and, and big ones too, um, or a family of educators, would you stand as well? God, you see these folks, we give you thanks for those 
who in our largest systems embody what it means to care, embody the best virtues of what it means for us to be a people as a nation. I thank you for those in this room who who are or who are loved ones of those who embody and are trying their best to embody what it means to be a reflection of the light of the Lamb in the various systems of our city and state. And we thank you today for those who embody in the life of a congregation and a church what it means to try to lead God's people in all of our different places. And I thank you for those who each day with far less reward than we should be giving them care for our young people and for their development, who serve in ways uh, to strengthen and bless them. I pray for every person in this room. We've been given various levels of authority. May we use that in ways that are not caught up in the commodification of ourselves or others, but make us reflections of the Lamb today, we pray. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with me? Let's worship together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We cry, holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder, show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me that you would lead us lord he's worthy worthy of every song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. We live for you. We can speak your name, Jesus, the name of every other name. The name of Jesus, Jesus, the only one could ever say. We know he is worthy. We live for you. He is holy, oh, holy. There is no one like you. There is none 
inside you. So open up our hearts, Lord, and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love. We cry out, he is holy, he's holy. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love. We build our lives on him. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will, we sing it in faith, church. Oh, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my only in you, Lord, only in you, Lord, and I will, we build our lives, and I will build my life upon Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I said to you, we're getting into parts of Revelation that are kind of scary and have beasts and judgment and all that kind of stuff. And I accidentally said, so if you're going to skip a couple of weeks, these may be the two weeks to skip. A few people took that too literally. Um, so let me say, if you're going to be present for a couple of weeks, 
the next two weeks, the new creation comes. And too often we cut off the gospel at Revelation 19 and fail to see the beauty of, uh, of the new creation coming. So don't miss it. But if you've listened well this morning, and I know that may have been hard to do, but if you listen well this morning, please hear this. God will never think of you or treat you as an it. You are not a commodity to God. And your worth to God will never be what you can produce or how beautiful you think you may be or not be. You will always be a thou, a child, the beloved of God. But with that privilege comes a call that we then go and learn how to treat each other as thou and not it. And love others as we have been loved by God. But it's also a call for all of us who have positions of authority to create structures that refuse to treat others as commodities and do the very best we can in a broken world to find ways to care, especially for those who have been most mistreated in Revelation 19, the, the folks who sing the loudest are those for whom Babylon did the most damage. And we want to join them. And if you've listened, well, you may think that has um, um, more calling than I'm up to. You are right. It is way more calling than I am up to or you are up to. It's why this benediction is for us. And now unto him who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine to him be glory in us. The structure called the church that he has named and called into being and in his son Christ Jesus now and for all generations. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.